0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Capitalize for Kids podcast. This week I spoke with Camilla Sutton, the President and CEO of Women in Capital Markets. Uh, Throughout the conversation, we traced her career on Bay Street, uh, which ultimately culminated as the Global Head of Foreign Exchange at Scotiabank, and her most recent transition to the new role at Women in Capital Markets. She had a lot to say about diversity in Canada's financial services industry, uh, and how we need to move the conversation and this is what I most appreciated, from diversity to inclusion. So really a must listen for anyone in finance and anyone who's interested in the conversation around gender in the workplace. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Camilla Sutton. You obviously have a, a, an interesting career path, an interesting career where you've ended up now at Women in Capital Markets, which I wanna to get to, but I'd like to start a bit earlier. So, so tell me about a, a bit about where you grew up, Born in
1: Toronto. I left Toronto for four years for university. I left again to do a master's for another two years,
0: but besides that, I've always been in Toronto. Were you always, while you are in Toronto, were you always thinking as finance as, as your path, or, or were you um, did that come to you after, after some time?
1: So my first degree is in international development, so I thought that I would solve the problems of the world in terms of poverty, um, but then I graduated university and recognized that A, jobs weren't that plentiful, and B, that was a pretty mighty task to solve. Where did you go? You, I was Dalhousie. Okay. Um, and so that really gives you a base in economics. So I really had a base in economics, and I'd always liked stock markets. and um, So I kind of started navigating down this financial path, thank goodness. Um, and I went back to school and did an MBA. And from there, I started work in equity research at BMO, um, which was a fabulous job. You get the fundamentals down pat. And I just kind of kept navigating from there.
0: And so, did you do? You did four years at Dalhousie right into two years uh, MBA, or you had a break in between?
1: No, I had a break in between. I worked for about three and a half years, and um, the jobs I did then are really all been automated. Um, essentially, we did a lot of kind of manual pieces that today would be almost fully automated. All on the trading floor, um, or on finance, all related into equities. Um, not really on a trade floor the way that my later career took me into a trade floor, um, but very kind of manual process stuff. That now today has all been automated by the exchanges and the banks.
0: So then you go, you go from the manual process job to the MBA, and then into one of the most intellectually difficult jobs, arguably on the street, uh, as an equity analyst at BMO in equity research. And so what was that experience like?
1: My boss was amazing, Brian Piccioni. He was the analyst, I was the associate, and I always describe him as being very generous in the sense that he allowed me to do things that he probably would have enjoyed doing himself. He took me along to meetings that he really didn't need to bring me to, but it gave me that bird's eye view into how those meetings take place, what management says when they're talking to equity analysts, and what equity analysts are really looking for.
0: So tell me about these meetings. So you're meeting with?
1: Managers of companies. Um, So CEOs, we covered Canadian semiconductors. There's not that many publicly traded left. Um, And we would meet with the companies to figure out, get a a much better idea of how the management and the strategy of the firm is taking place. Um, And so really, I was probably mute in those meetings, but it gave me this really good idea about what Brian was looking for, how you host those meetings, all of those pieces, um, which I always am thankful for because I feel like that really gave you the foundation. But that was because Brian was a very generous manager in the way he thought about developing
0: people. What was important, okay, so you're going into these meetings to, to get information from a management team that you can then write a report and give a recommendation to buy or sell this this company. Um, that meeting, is there, a, is there a lot of chess being played uh, between the, the researcher trying to get the information and the management team not willing or willing to divulge the information? Like, what is that interaction like?
1: There's not a lot of chess, but I think a good analyst knows how to ask the right questions to bring them to the points that they want to. And so obviously the financial piece is critical in terms of what you're analyzing. Then the strategy is the next critical piece. And so managers who can really talk to the strategy in a way that's convincing and realistic and highlights that they've done their due diligence and organizationally they're very sound and typically add a lot to a research report. And so those are important meanings when you're looking at equity analysis.
0: While uh, in equity research, um, you then made a move after that, right? You, you made a, a change in so direction.
1: I did. If it's not already obvious, the world of equity research is very narrow and very micro. We cover Canadian technology stocks, a so tiny little piece of the world, and I really wanted to broaden. And so I moved to OMERS in their on their derivatives desk for portfolio management. So we transacted any derivative across the desk and we ran two portfolios ourselves. So we had a um, a big FX hedge program and a global equity derivative program and I started our active FX program um, so that was a very macro job a job that looked at central banks at economics at global growth um, and there was real opportunity in order to be able to um, not just have an idea but have an idea put it to work see the results and um, so that was a very that that was an excellent role in terms of broadening out from where it started,
0: it's almost like a on the other side of the spectrum, where, like you said, equity analysis is very, very narrow, and then this role kind of opens the doors to, to seeing the entire Absolutely. global scale.
1: Yes, you definitely broaden out, and you really,
0: my economics background, really started to be very useful in those roles. What was the biggest challenge of having to look at like that that size of, of that being your scope, you know, global outlook?
1: The biggest challenge is a lesson my boss at Omer's, Rob Fotheringham, taught me, which is when you're trading, you can get, he always used to tell us, you can get any trade you want, but you need a stop loss. And when your stop loss hits, you get out of the trade. There's no waiting. There's no anything. You just get out of the trade. You want to put that trade on five minutes later, put it on again. But the discipline around trading a portfolio is critical. I think that's the most important pieces. And you hear kind of the slang all the time. Oh, let your profits run, cut your losses. But having the discipline to have all that in place before you put on the trade and then actually abiding by it when the trade is going through, those are the critical pieces and probably the hardest part. And those are also what makes really good traders and portfolio managers.
0: Can you explain for for people who might not know uh, what a stop loss is and why it might be so difficult to enact that discipline? When
1: you put on a trade, you believe that we'll take that role, for instance, in currencies. So let's say you believe that the US dollar is going to go lower, so you short the US dollar and you go long a different currency, maybe euro. And if you're wrong and the US dollar continues to rise, at some point you have to get out of that trade. And so having set that level before you enter the trade makes it easier to get out because it's very disciplined. The problem is in the the moment, even as the dollar is going higher, you really believe that it's going to go lower. And so it gets harder and harder to accept the loss. And so having this discipline stop loss so that you're forced to get out at a certain level in place really makes a lot of sense.
0: Is that philosophy applicable outside of trading currencies and and derivatives?
1: I think it's all about discipline. Um, And I think that's really what financial markets and opportunities within financial markets really crave, is people who are highly disciplined. Typically, you see people who have been highly disciplined in either sports or arts, music, and typically they do very well in financial careers as well because they have that discipline in them. They're very thoughtful and precise and they can practice and practice and practice and until they reach a level that really is expert.
0: And and so then you transitioned from that role where you're kind of on the front lines making the trades to at some point I guess you then become a manager right? and you start managing a group of people who are making the trades and who are trading.
1: So I went from Portfolio Management at OMERS over to Scotiabank in FX strategy. So almost combining both my role from equity research and my role from OMERS into FX strategy. Um, And essentially FX strategy is you write about, talk about, think about where currency markets are going. And you spend a lot of time talking to clients. There's a whole host of corporate, institutional and commercial clients who might be excellent at making a table, a chair, um, but know very little about foreign exchange risk or how to mitigate it in their firms. And most of those companies don't have 5% margins to give away on currency fluctuation. So being able to talk to clients about A, where we thought markets are going, but B, how you mitigate risks that they might have in terms of their company. Um, It really is an important role in terms of corporate Canada and delivering some risk mitigation that can really help firms position
0: themselves well for future growth. In that, you mentioned that in that role, it requires a lot of, a lot of thinking. In the there's a lot of moving parts, right? If Where's Japan's interest rates versus where's the oil price going to affect Canada? Where is you know, the Central Bank of the U.S.? What are they going to do? So there's a lot of moving parts. So how do you digest that information? Obviously, you have models, and um, I'm sure that you have a lot of smart people doing the math, and I'm sure you are as well. But there's an element of thinking there. And, and so what did thinking look like for you? Were you in a room alone thinking? Did you have a team that you trusted in conversation? How did you think? That's the best part of the job is that you really get to put all the pieces together and decide
1: what does this mean for currencies. Um, and so for me, a lot of that takes place early in the morning. Um, I'm very early. I've probably always been the first at work ever. Um, and that was really a good time to think and try to process this is what's happened. This is what's happening. These are the big themes. What should this mean for currencies? But also trying to break it down in a way that anybody who was interested actually understood what the drivers of currencies were so that if they believed that oil prices were going to the moon and I thought they were going to collapse, they could switch that piece of the formula and figure out what that then meant for them in terms of where they saw currencies going.
0: Talk to me about your mornings. How did you, how did you get yourself into a mind state where you were able to think about all these things that are obviously
1: never really going down a path medium um, so I always rode my bike to work um, which was good thinking time and then I would get to work and how long of a bike ride is that it's pretty quick 20 minutes 25 minutes you wear a helmet? just nice time alone It was always dark out it was very easy you wear a helmet uh, always perfect lots of lights There you go. <laughs> um, but uh, You know, it's really just about digesting all the news. And it's really easy to do that when you're alone in the trade floor um, before everyone starts to pile in. And then it's critically important that you're digesting all the different angles. A lot of the traders will see things in a very short term because they really care about what's going to happen today. Uh, A lot of the salespeople and clients care much more about the long term. And so it's really trying to piece all of that together.
0: The trading floor... Traders typically get there pretty early. So for you to be the first one there, you must have been there at like five. (laughs) What time did you get there? I was always at work by five. Always. (laughs) I really enjoyed my job. That's amazing. That's amazing.
1: I really enjoyed my jobs. There was a tremendous amount of challenge in them. They always changed. You were never bored. And I always felt like I would leave work wishing there was another hour in the day. And I would get home and wish there was another hour to spend at home with the kids and my husband. So... That's an amazing feeling to have. Yeah.
0: That's like when you—that's when you know you're being fulfilled. Is when, you
1: know. I bet you feel that way with
0: a lot of the work you do. We try. We try at Cat Place for Kids to, to enjoy the work that we do. I, I think a big part of it for us is is the team. I think we, I didn't really think about when I was in university was, um, you know, your career and your job wherever you end up working. We were always so focused on on what we're doing versus who we're doing it with. Which is such a massive piece, and, and like you are the sum of the five people you're around, right, or the average of the five people that you're around. They always say, and I never really thought about that. And, and here, it's you know, it's people who are, who are thoughtful, who um, have a, a strong social conscience, who want to create something meaningful. Uh, so that is where I find uh, a lot of the value. I'm sure you found that also on in your various roles. Where, you
1: know, yeah, well, I've always been lucky enough to be surrounded by smart, engaged people. Who want to talk markets, mm. um, and that aligned very well with how I wanted to spend my day. So, absolutely, it's the people around you is really what makes work interesting.
0: So, so you build this incredible career where you know you you start off uh, in in equity research, uh, then you go into you know, on the trading floor at Omer's, uh, and then you, know, you take the, both those skills, you combine them into FX strategy and. You, you clearly are on this trajectory of, of, of something pretty meaningful, uh, which you achieve as the global head at, at, of, of strategy at Scotia. And then you leave all that.
1: Yeah, hey, I got to global head of foreign exchange. Global head of foreign exchange. So I ran all of trading, sales, and strategy. <laughs> which is an incredible post
0: to hold. Uh, obviously, a lot of people under you, there's, there's a lot of big decisions you have to make. Why do you leave that, and where are you now?
1: Well, now I'm the president and CEO of WCM, or Women in Capital Markets. And this has been a really good, interesting change for me. I've always been passionate about diversity. I've always been passionate about inclusion. I've always been passionate about why we aren't seeing more women come up through capital markets. I feel like I've had the most rewarding career, as we've talked about. Always engaged, always challenged, always something interesting to work on. And always rewarded for that either through what you've done and achieved with clients um, or through how you're being compensated um, and so for me this is such an exciting career opportunity and yet we really haven't been able to move the dial and for decades there's been a whole host of us women and men working on the sides of our desk trying to drive diversity and inclusion trying to build more women into the firms and yet we continually are faced with a lot of the same problems I look at it now and I feel like what Einstein says about if he had a problem to solve and only one hour to solve it, he would spend 55 minutes of that hour defining the problem and five minutes with the solution. And I often feel like when it comes to diversity and inclusion, we spend five minutes defining the problem and then 55 minutes with the solution. And we try all these different pieces, but we're not actually achieving what we need to because we're not actually hitting the right part of the problem.
0: That's really interesting, uh, and I think that can be said for, for, for a host of problems, uh, but specifically I want to unpack something that you said there, uh, diversity and inclusion. Can you define diversity and then also inclusion and, and what they mean to you?
1: Yeah, I think the best way to define diversity and inclusion, and if we talk about gender, um, you know diversity is that you, have, you had a table full of men, and now you have a table that is mixed between men and women, Inclusion is when women actually have a voice at that table. So not only are they sitting at the table, but they actually have a voice. And So I think when you look at, I think you can think about building diversity by just now, you used to have 10 men, and now you have 10 men, and now you have 5 men and 5 women. So that's diversity. But that doesn't actually mean anything. If those women aren't included, aren't part of the business, aren't part of the strategy, they'll eventually fall away again. And so it's almost like you need to build the inclusion first. So you need to keep your team of 10 men and figure out how do we build a very inclusive, thoughtful culture. And once you build that, the women will actually rise within it. And then you'll actually have a diversified and inclusive culture that will allow you to build, cult- build a business that has five men and five women. And so I think there's a really big important piece about
0: diversity and inclusion. So is part of the problem that we haven't been, because I mean, you and I spoke about this before, but that was probably the first time I've really heard someone speak uh, about inclusion in the way that you do. Uh, I think it's it's not a voice that we often hear, especially when it comes to gender diversity, because people just speak about gender diversity. So is this something that you want to bring to the table? Is, is is part of defining the problem is, is the lack of inclusion?
1: Absolutely. I think when we look at what we've tried to achieve within capital markets. Um, I think that there's a lot more to be done. And part of that lies with inclusion, but part of it really lies with defining what some of the culture problems really are and um, that we can tackle. I think it's very quick and easy to jump to, oh, it's because of family, it's because of commitment to kids, it's because of the need for flex time. Um, and I think that we're just really grading the surface when we start talking about that. I think the much bigger picture is is that having a really well-diversified and inclusive uh, culture not just helps your business results, but is very impactful to the Canadian economy. So we can increase our GDP by 0.6% 0. 0. a year, which sounds small, but it's huge. You probably know best uh, how big I that do. is. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a big number. Yeah. Um, we can increase it by just building a more equivalent workforce. Um, and so the power for the economy is tremendous. The power for individual firms and individual teams
0: is really important. What are some, what are some of those drivers for the 0.6%? The like, what, what would what would the economy look like, or how would it improve versus today if, if we did have that equality?
1: Well, I think you end up with a workforce that is actually far more productive and far more able to deliver, and all of that creates growth. I think when you really look at some of the stats for if we on pay equity or um, the gender gap in pay, um, what you see is that some of that gender gap is created because you have most of the women in fairly junior roles and a lot of men in fairly senior roles. Um, and we know the ways to combat that. So we know that increasing women's involvement in STEM, increasing women's involvement in entrepreneurship, increasing women's involvement in finance, all of those pieces really help to to um, narrow the gender pay gap, they're really important pieces, and those are things we can tackle. And WCM tries to tackle those things through things like we run SheBiz for high school students. Um, it's full day conference, and really, all the whole goal is to open their eyes to the importance of choosing STEM um, for the sake of their long term career potentials.
0: What so th- that's something that WCM is doing. What are some things? Some things that everyday people can do to, um, you know, increase the likelihood of us hitting that 0.6%. Obviously, there's some systems levels changes that organizations like yourself can can help. Uh, What can we do every day?
1: Well, I think when you look at what we can do to drive it, in the corporate culture, you can do things like implement targets and hold people accountable. Uh, That's a big, important one. You can become much more transparent with promoting with pay, with all of those pieces that you are considering gender in them. I think So the
0: targets, sorry, the, the targets are, is that um, like hiring targets and whatnot? Like what, is, what do those targets look like?
1: All types of targets. So you, targets in terms of you only interview a diversified slate, your interviewers are diversified themselves, you ask standardized questions, you have criteria that go into the, that go, that you have going into the job interview, and then you measure the candidates against the criteria. These are all kind of boring policy type pieces, but that's what we did on conscious bias, and that's what helps to weed and and, and deliver a more diversified candidate pool. Um, and so those are really important changes we can make. I think um, I wish sometimes we weren't called women in capital markets, and we were called gender in capital markets, um, because this isn't a women's issue. I think we have to redefine. Gender. So we need to redefine masculinity, we need to redefine what being a woman is, and I actually think both genders would be really happy with that. I know lots of men who are really interested in being engaged with their kids and are frustrated when people say to them, meaning well, wow, you're so engaged with your kids, it's really nice. That should be the expectation, not the surprise. And I think so redefining masculinity in that sense would actually provide a lot more opportunities for men to be able to do different things and have some of the benefits that women already have.
0: So let's say we have a listener who is a male, uh, who this is the first time he's hearing uh, about redefining masculinity. Um, and he defines masculinity as what he's seen in movies and you know, what he's seen over the past years about bringing home the bacon, you know, getting the job, ignoring your kids, repressing your feelings, all that good stuff. What would you say to him as redefining masculinity? How would you try and communicate that? And, and what are some th- steps that you're trying to take towards doing that?
1: Well, all we're trying to do is engage both genders in the dialogue around gender diversity. Um, but I think in terms of redefining, I think that there's, we sit right now in a culture that is still evolving. And we have so far to go in terms of defining what gender roles are. And so I think when you think about, you know, housework in Canada, um, you know, typically 60% of, house, of work within the home is done by women. And um, I think some might argue it's even higher. However, so we'll leave it at 60%, but trying to balance that out. I know before my husband and I were married and we went to this slightly ridiculous marriage class. But one of the things that made us do was turn our backs to each other and fill out this silly form. And you had to write down, like, percentage-wise, who does the dishes? You or him, percentage wise, who does the laundry? It was like this ridiculous form. And of course, at the end, you turn around and you both think you do way more. <laughs> and so it's like every single category has up to 150%. But I think being thoughtful about who actually is doing the work in the home, who actually is taking on the joy, but as well as the responsibility of childcare, and what that means to a lot of people's career. I meet women all the time who say, Oh, my husband's a partner, so and so. And, you know, in order for him to really succeed, I'm taking a back step, Um, which is great in terms of a family. But you also see that burden falling almost always on women and very rarely on men.
0: So is part of that still the stigma to being a stay-at-home dad, so to speak?
1: I think stay-at-home dads are highly rewarded. I don't think that they are included in a lot of the pieces that take place being at home. So I think if you're a man and you decide to take leave with a newborn, you're not going to find yourself very included in mummy at me music time. Um, And I think that that highlights the society is still really evolving. This is a big, big issue. Um, that has a long way to go.
0: Can I make the assumption that you still come in pretty early? You're still one of the first ones in the office? Definitely like to wake up early. Yeah. So whereas you used to think about the price of oil and price of soybeans and how that affects you know, interest rates in Slovakia. Now I'm sure you're thinking about different inputs into how to solve this problem that you're speaking about. What are some of those things that you come in and, and think about in the morning?
1: I'm super excited because I feel like politically, socially, corporate, everybody is really on side in terms of driving it. And I feel like the biggest problem is most people just don't know, what can I actually do to help contribute to that change? So at WCM, we run all these different programs. We have high school, university, professional, and then we do advocacy and research. And all of those pieces have an impact. I want to drive those pieces all to have much bigger impact. And so when you look in terms of how I spend my day now, it's a lot talking to sponsors, talking about what they're doing in their firms, trying to and drive the impact of that, trying to share best practices across firms. But a lot of it is also about educating. As young as high school, highlighting the career opportunities within STEM, within finance, really trying to make sure that they leave all options open. And there's so much that can be done and there's so much messaging that needs to take place around how we can do this better. And diversity used to be this nice to have and it became a business case. Now it's a major risk to organizations who aren't driving and doing things to make change. And so our role is really helping, amplifying, delivering on that. And a lot of them really just want information. How can I drive a better culture? What is going on in my culture that I can actually fix as a leader? How can I drive that better culture? I would say most of the poor culture issues now, they're not like what you see in the movies. Um, I think they're much more good intentioned, but they drive a culture that's very difficult for women to really succeed in. And those are the pieces we really have to get to. And this is fixable, this is solvable. And the CEO of Salesforce doing the gender pay audit on his firm, swearing that he had no issues, and then recognizing, wow, I have a really big discrepancy between what I'm paying men and what I'm paying women for exactly the same job, and I can fix this, And then fixing it really highlights the way that we need to think about all of these issues. And that is a huge mitigant for him going forward in terms of the risk that his firm could face. And so not only has he thought about it, but he's done something actionable, even though he didn't believe he had the problem. And then once he recognized he had a problem, he went about trying to fix it. Now the next step is going to be, what culture do I have that allowed this to happen? And how do I attack that culture? all of these things will be very positive changes and it's really just everything we've done to date almost needs to be turned on its head and started again and because we haven't gotten to the root and we haven't gotten to solutions that make sense we put all women into this one big box and decide that all women want flexibility and they want to be able to leave early to see their kids and they want and we haven't recognized that women aren't all part of one big box. Um, and that really what every woman wants is very different the same way that what every man wants is very different.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. How can someone, uh, a university student, high school student, even a young professional, how can someone get involved in women capital markets?
1: Tons of ways. Um, so we do a lot of conferences, we do a lot of kind of connecting. Um, university students can mentor high school students. Well, university students who are in a STEM degree or business can mentor high school students about their path Um, young professionals can mentor university students about their path. We have tremendous amounts of volunteer opportunities. So we go into high schools, we go into universities, and then we have a lot of volunteer opportunities in order to deliver on what we're trying to deliver the messaging there. And, and we also run things like job shadow day where high school students come downtown Toronto for a day, they spend the morning seeing role models, listening to what careers are like in capital markets, and they spend the afternoon on various trade floors um, to really get a feel that this is not the wolf on Wall Street. And the culture is actually, even though the culture needs to evolve, the culture is not the culture that's depicted in Hollywood. Um, and so that they really get an idea of what's exciting. And um, so there's lots of ways to get involved. The more senior you get, the more opportunities there are. You mentor protégés, um, speaking engagements, being on panels, and really just being a member of WCM is a really important driver. When you're a member of WCM, it gives us funding to go and continue programming to really drive um, the messages and to really try to build more women interested in STEM and business um, and to break down some of the myths that are surrounding working in
0: capital markets. Awesome. Just... You mentioned, you mentioned mentorship, you have a pretty courageous path, and, and I think that you, you think outside the box, and it seems like you might have had some high quality mentors in, in your, throughout your career. Uh, who are some of those mentors, and, and what, what do they provide you with? So I've had lots of different types
1: of mentors. I was, uh, in 1999, I was a protege of WCM, and I had a mentor. Um, and that was a very rewarding experience. But I've had a lot of mentors within my firm. People often ask me about sponsorship. And the biggest surprise I had at sponsorship is the people who really sponsored me. I didn't recognize them as sponsors in the moment, I recognized it after the fact. But I also felt like they had seen the worst of me. They had been the people I'd gone to in the moment where I for some reason I couldn't get a project done and I was struggling with it or I'd gone to them for advice because something was happening that I didn't want to happen and I was trying to shift course. So I felt like a lot of those sponsors had really seen almost the worst in me. Um, and yet they were the ones that pushed forward. And i thinking about it in hindsight. I think they're the ones who actually really knew me. And that's why I was comfortable going to them in a state of frustration and trying to understand, like, what am I doing wrong that's not getting me here? Um, and so I think that you know the mentor turns into sponsors when you really develop a level of, of relationship where they really know you and then they feel quite comfortable sponsoring you. Um, but in terms of mentors, there's lots. I think of my career at Scotiabank, Warren Justin, who was our chief economist for years. I was never in his reporting chain, but he was very good to me. You know, my boss throughout um, Scotiabank, uh, Barry Weinstein, who's now retired, Um, I mean, he was interesting because he drove diversity within his group in ways that I'm not sure he was always conscious of. He had probably more women than a lot of people working within his group. And I always thought in the moment that it was because he recognized that the women who are really succeeding in capital markets are really hardworking, really strong, and they have their eye on the ball. And so he tried to bring more and more into his group because he knew they were really producing. Um, and so it's interesting how you pass. But I also find there's some really people who were much more junior than I were. I was um, that really have contributed tremendously to me. Uh, I would say in particular when I left Scotiabank, the women who worked on the trade floor, the outpouring of of kindness and support, it's amazing. Um, so you really see that as you build your career, um, you have these mentors in all different areas, in all different places. Um, but In the end, sponsors are the ones that really matter in terms of being promoted and being escalated within your firm.
0: Well, we certainly appreciate you sponsoring Capitalize for Kids with your stamp to take this time to, to do the podcast, so thank you. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to hear some of your insights and thoughts. Um, if people wanted to learn more about Women in Capital Markets, where could they find uh, some information?
1: WCM.ca, and they're always welcome to reach out to me. But thank you for the opportunity as well. You know I'm a big fan of what you're doing. It's really important work,
0: um, and it's such an
1: interesting model, the way you're approaching it.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's been, uh, been an absolute pleasure, and uh, thank you for, for being on the podcast.
1: Of course, my pleasure.
0: And there it is. We hope you enjoyed that chat. I know that both Eugene and myself enjoyed that very much. So thank you very much to Camilla. And thanks so much to you, to all of our listeners, because this podcast would not be possible without all of you listening and providing us with the feedback uh, on on the work that we're doing. I'd also mention that if there's any interest in hearing from a particular person in the Canadian capital markets or broader uh, business community, please feel free to send us your uh, requests or, or thoughts because you know, we would love to, to make sure that we have people on the podcast uh, who are of interest to you. This episode of the Capitalize for Kids podcast was produced by our digital marketing genius Eugene McCashee and I'm your host, Evan Saquera. Join us for our final episode of the season where in two weeks, I'll be speaking with my boss and new head of Capitalize for Kids, Quentin Broad. Until then, take care.